Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to Suite 212 after a lengthy absence. As those of you who have been following the show will know, we decided to stop our weekly programme on Resonance 104.4 FM in May last year, as we found it unsustainable to continue producing it on a weekly basis, given the amount of labour it involved. As the founder and most frequent presenter of the programme, as well as its representative at public events, and runner of its Twitter account, people kept telling me they missed it, feeling, like I did, that intelligent cultural coverage was a notable absence not just from British mainstream broadcasting, but also the left-wing podcasting scene. In the wake of December's harrowing general election defeat and the end of the Corbyn project, I decided to bring the programme back, feeling that the idea of consciousness raising through culture was more important than ever, and that it might be constructive to do some political work that was not directly tied to the Labour Party. So the idea was to follow the lead of many other left-wing podcasts and go online only, funding it through Patreon subscriptions, with one free episode a month and another available only to subscribers. Then the coronavirus epidemic hit, with galleries and other cultural institutions stopping their events programmes or shutting down entirely, and social distancing, making it harder to convene the kind of panel discussions that we usually bring to you. However, I feel it's essential to think about things besides the news during this unprecedented crisis. In a time of social isolation, it's invaluable to remind ourselves that what came before this epidemic will resume after it, whatever the world looks like in its wake, and does not cease to be important for the duration. With that in mind, I've decided to record a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers, musicians and other cultural figures conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom, and hopefully beyond in the 21st century, through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of their time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I would still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. With all that said, the first of these Sweet 212 sessions is with Alona Sagar, an artist who lives and works in London. Using a diverse range of media spanning moving image, text, performance and assemblage, she has formed a body of work which responds to the social and historical context found in the public and private spaces we inhabit. A significant aspect of her practice is the broad cross-disciplinary dialogue generated through collaboration with a range of art and scientific disciplines, including dance, architecture and neurology. She has a practice that explores the link between language, surface, technologies and the body through our increasingly mediated encounters in social, political and experiential space. Illusion and material dishonesty set the stage for works which seek to seduce, alluding to something familiar yet other. Ilona, welcome to Suite 212. Hello, Juliet. <laughs> Thank you so much for kind of inviting me to this this first broadcast. And we've been speaking for a while now over this this quite strange period of, of time. And I'm just really glad that you've kind of taken this moment to bring back Suite 212. So I, I really think that we, we need something like this <laughs> right now. That's my feeling too. And it's strange. I mean, I had planned to bring the show back 
maybe a month or so before this all kicked off and had just done a lot of the planning for a new series including setting up a conversation about the university college union strikes which i think we're going to come back to later but something that we half jokingly talked about on twitter was the idea of corona radio uh, which i think was an offhand comment you made to me but it immediately struck me as a good idea and it struck me that doing this series of interviews would be a, a good way of um of continuing to produce the show during the outbreak and i wanted you to be my first first guest partly because you'd you'd suggested this and partly because a lot of your work has dealt with healthcare issues and you know you have an interest in yeah. art that deals with disability and health conditions so i wonder if we could maybe talk more about that yeah you know as you said we've been kind of speaking quite a lot over the last few months over over the course of the strikes and this kind of quite strange period of time and I've really enjoyed finding these kind of parallels in in practice and the way that we think and it was a silly idea this idea of a corona radio <laughs> but I do it has kind of made me think about I suppose what it means to kind of adapt and what it means to kind of adapt to a kind of new normal that we're we're experiencing now and I, I think there's been a, a real kind of wave of very positive quite exciting responses to to this situation but I, I also think we need to think quite carefully about how we frame that response so I suppose uh, for many kind of disabled people those with kind of low immunity those uh, with kind of other chronic uh, health conditions the idea of kind of isolation isn't a kind of break from normality it's very much part of a, a routine and I suppose I, I think about some kind of amazing artists and writers that that deal with a subject like that so um, like Caroline uh, Lazard, Joanna Hevder, uh, Leah Clements whose who's work kind of thinks about models of resistance and support and care and the kind of political structures that frame marginalised bodies so when we're, we're developing these new platforms, these new ways of finding connection and, and collecting, uh, I think we, we need to think about their connectivity to kind of other platforms that already exist that support the disabled community, that support kind of marginalised bodies that lack visibility, rather than kind of sensationalising the idea of, of isolation. And I suppose that kind of makes me think about the idea of self-care as something that can be political and transgressive rather than passive, that kind of embodies a lot of criticality and resistance and, and that's something that we can all do together rather than something that is divisive, if that makes sense. So I think there's we're in a moment where there's a lot of potential and a lot of different people are becoming revealed, I suppose, in, in ways that they were maybe hidden before. So it's quite an exciting but also turbulent moment, I suppose. I don't know if you agree or not. Yeah, I mean, one thing I am interested to see is to what extent galleries and institutions who've taken exhibitions online continue to do so after things return to whatever normal looks like on the other side of this. Of course, there's an anxiety that lots of smaller galleries and institutions are going to disappear. But places who are putting work online, I've already seen disability activists and others saying look this illustrates a lack of caring for people for whom these spaces are not accessible the rest of the time and whether or not that leads to a a permanent change in their way of thinking remains to be seen I think. Totally I agree and I think it's about a shift in mindset we're at the very beginning of those conversations beginning to happen 
but I still feel like they are very much coming from a, a quite able perspective. <laughs> so whether or not those narratives go beyond that, even though we're having these conversations in, in non-physical ways, is up for debate. Joanna Hevda posted recently that uh, so many people have been quoting from the text Sick Women Theory, which kind of thinks about how to resist or how to protest when you can't leave your bedroom. Like, how do you uh, mobilise yourself when you can't become a body on the street? They quite rightfully um, pointed out that this text was kind of being taken into a different context. And I think we, we always need to be mindful of that. Also, I suppose we need to kind of think about how we do mobilise and we do collect and we can kind of continue these moments of criticality, maybe outside of big institutions. And maybe there is a lot of potential in this moment right now to think about within a political context that's not necessarily directly affecting uh, the creative industries, but very much contains it, is like, how do we keep watch over a kind of increasingly kind of draconian series of kind of governmental policies that are coming into play? How do we, as a creative industry, uh, respond to that when we can't occupy physical space? When universities are responding in quite uncaring ways to their students and staff at this quite difficult moment of of shutdown how do we support those people when we can't gather and we can't collect yeah there's lots of things right now that we need to kind of think through and I think the creative industries can do that in in quite an impactful way I mean we're we're talking at quite an interesting moment so we're recording on the morning of Saturday the 21st of March and I don't normally bring such a kind of concrete date into into our recordings but things are moving so quickly that I think it's worth noting the exact time we're speaking because the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has announced a series of measures, uh, levels of state intervention not really seen in this country probably since the 1940s, 1950s and certainly not from a Conservative government. But these measures have really been designed to protect homeowners, mortgage holders and people in permanent employment And there's been lots of conversation amongst the artists and writers that I follow online about the relative lack of protection for freelancers who are just entitled to universal credit now, which is equivalent to statutory sick pay. And of course, for a lot of uh, long time unemployed people, people struggling financially, or of course, disabled people, you know, this frustration and fear uh, induced by a rather Byzantine, incredibly ungenerous welfare system will not be unfamiliar to them. I mean, it's an interesting moment as well, because after the general election, December 2019, a lot of people who, like you and I, had thrown a lot of energy and time into the Labour Party suddenly started having to think about alternative ways of organising and alternative ways of positing a different future to the kind of nightmare that uh, looked like it was lying ahead of us with the Conservative majority that they secured in in that election. One thing that has been mooted in the last couple of days is a freelance workers union, uh, Stephen Pritchard from the the Movement for Cultural Democracy, has been talking about setting something up and in fact has set something up this morning. And in addition to something like the Artists Union England, which was set up a few years ago, this has potential to unite artists and writers and other creative people with people in the gig economy, all sorts of other freelance workers, and hopefully build the kind of links between creative people 
and other working people in ways that I think people in the creative arts have have long hoped to do. So that might be an interesting cultural shift. I mean, you mentioned the universities and you and I were on the picket line together at the Royal College of Art, where I have been a visiting lecturer, one of many. I think the RCA uses about uses a huge percentage of um, of casualised labour and visiting lecturers on what are not even zero hours contracts. Really, I mean, it's all very very informal, uh, and obviously, all of us have anxieties about whether or not we're going to continue to get that employment, whether we're going to be paid for work that we've already agreed to do. Um, but you've been a PhD student at the Royal College of Art. Uh, but you've also been a lecturer and teacher. Um, And I wondered if you'd like to maybe talk about your experience of the strike a bit, some of your experiences as a student and a teacher in higher education, and how you feel about PhD students who are going to be graduating into the current labour market for for university lecturers. Yeah, I don't know if I can really say anything concrete about PhD students graduating right now, because everything feels like a very unknown abyss. Sorry to be so <laughs> depressing about it, but um, I, I, it's very hard to know what to say about what that means right now uh, in a positive way. But just to sort of respond to some of what you were saying about the sort of casualization and the kind of precarity of, of freelancers, it very much ties into my reasoning for joining the strikes and, and to be supportive of previous strikes, actually. My practice has always been supported by my work in universities as a, a visiting lecturer or a contracted lecturer in, in, in different environments. One of the main reasons that I, I chose to do that or to begin that career was because my practice in itself couldn't sustain itself. And, and and that wasn't because I wasn't receiving funding from the institutions that I work with. It's just that the fees and the funding that was available wasn't really adequate to um, to support the amount of work that I was being asked to do. And I think that's a common concern of many artists at different levels that I've spoken to, that um, for an 18-month project, it never uh, really reflects the amount of work that you're being asked to do uh, from public institutions. So working in universities became a means to, to support my practice that I really enjoyed. And I think because my practice is so invested in research, it's so invested in dialogue and conversation and challenge, it suited my practice in a a very meaningful way for me. But where I found the struggle was the way that I was being employed. So I'm not sure if I should mention institutions, but I've uh, worked for some architectural institutions where I've been asked to do a term's worth of work for £500. I've been in institutions where I wouldn't know how many hours I would have uh, week to week. You know, it's it's an experience of, of many of my peers as well as myself that sometimes I've felt that the use of zero hours contracts has has been put in place to address kind of gender imbalances in departments so that the students are are given a kind of visual idea of equality when when actually when it you come to pay there's huge kind of discrepancies in how staff are treated but I've also worked in more contracted positions and with that becomes a kind of burden of responsibility around workload around student satisfaction 
bringing in increasing numbers of students when, uh, as a department, you already might feel at capacity. And uh, this creates a huge amount of pressure uh, within institutions that limits uh, students' ability to be radical, to create radical pedagogical spaces. And I think I think they're becoming increasingly important. Um, uh, Ty Shaney talked about this um, on the picket, actually, that uh, London, for example, is losing a lot of its alternative spaces, a lot of its free spaces to try out ideas, to experiment with new ways of working. And when we're losing those spaces, universities are incredibly important. And if they feel like commodities, if they feel like franchise spaces, then we're really losing something very important. But I suppose when I say that I've been thinking a lot about adaptation, I think that very much applies to the way that I think about work and the way that we work. And it's something that's been on my mind for a while in the, the way that we're becoming more and more reliant on these kind of distance learning technologies. And, and some of the institutions that I, I work within uh, or I, I um, have a knowledge of as a as a PhD student are extending how they operate as a university into these digital platforms, um, and that was very much before <laughs> before Corona, before this this need for social distancing. I think it's quite problematic, and it has it throws up some quite problematic questions around what it means to learn um, in these kind of digital spaces, but also what it means for the workload of staff and students that are, are being asked to work in these, these non-physical spaces. When art schools are, are being asked to kind of cut their studio space and increase student numbers, the kind of reliance of a digital space uh, becomes really worrying. And I think over this period of time where we're having to social distance, uh, we have to be really mindful of what that means. And I think the timing is um, bad in some ways in that we've gone straight from a strike through to this crisis. And it does open up quite a lot of questions about a kind of transgressive pedagogical space. Like how do we safeguard that from universities that are now thinking about their finances, actually? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been doing some online tutorials in the last kind of week or so to compensate for the lack of physical meeting. And of course, these tutorials have been replacing crit sessions where the students meet in a group of seven or eight and they all know each other's work and they they have a group discussion about each person's work. And that's all been replaced by online one-to-one tutorials, which is nowhere near as good. And, you know, for students spending thousands of pounds a year on their tuition fees to not be able to access their studios, not be able to access each other in the same way, I think is a real problem. So I'd like to move the conversation on now and talk about some recent research you've been doing uh, with regards to a healthcare issue with people who've worked with asbestos. So I wonder if you'd like to talk to me about that. It's uh, strangely, uh, it's kind of, I think, quite a relevant project to be talking about now, actually. Uh, it's a, it's a commission that I'm I'm doing uh, with the the Serpentine Gallery, and it's quite difficult at this moment to kind of talk about the kind of specifics of that project, just because we are in this moment of of uncertainty. But I think what's quite hopeful for the project is that the community groups that I'm working with and the gallery are are kind of continuing to support the project, and and together we're we're trying to find 
ways to make the project happen, even though, you know, timelines will will slip around it, I'm, I'm sure. But I, I can talk about the research that um, that I've been doing uh, for the project. And uh, I've been researching the, the kind of industrial history of, of Barking and Dagenham in relation to the anniversary of the Ford Dagenham strike. Uh, which kind of frames the whole whole project, and um, the the Ford Dagenham machinist strike was uh, it's a very well known uh, and important anniversary that will be coming up next year. Uh, it marks the anniversary of when there was a uh, a strike at the Ford Dagenham plant for uh, equality in terms of pay, and it's an incredibly important anniversary to kind of think about. And um, I've been exploring the links between work, health and the body in relation to that anniversary. Uh, So I've been researching different archives and industries that are kind of connected to Barkin and and Dagenham, particularly around the role that the borough played in the development of key pharmaceuticals through to kind of uh, social work practice and and disability. And through this kind of wider pool of, of research, trying to kind of understand this this kind of very rich history that the borough has in terms of workers rights but also uh, industry I kind of came across the very difficult history that Barking uh, and Dagenham has in relation to asbestos so uh, due to the fact that there were kind of heavy industry and, and docks in, in, in uh, Dagenham the borough has the the highest levels of asbestos um, mesothelioma uh, in London and uh, it's a type of lung cancer that you can only get if you you come into contact with asbestos. I suppose the effects of asbestos um, highlight the the kind of class entrenched kind of divisions of labour and civic space that I suppose we have historically but definitely have an impact on on the now because it was it was mainly kind of dockyard workers, uh, factory workers, people that handled this this um, kind of toxic uh, fibrous uh, mineral through to kind of laggers and carpenters that would work with the material and in the contemporary it's it's the people that then remove this material so plumbers and electricians uh, it's a material that is that really does expose uh, different ideas of class and I think that's why I was kind of interested in it in the way that it articulates that and Cape Asbestos was one of the largest asbestos manufacturers uh, in Britain and it uh, existed in Barking and Dagenham. When the factory was closed eventually after a huge kind of lobby against it, which was a real battle um, because, you know, these manufacturers tried to trivialise scientific evidence against asbestos. That site has now become a housing estate. And there's actually cases that have emerged where people have been exposed to asbestos who live on that estate. So class and work are are completely entwined with the kind of traumatic history of asbestos, I suppose. And those sufferers that I've been speaking with, they're kind of stuck between layers of bureaucratic paperwork and the benefit system. So you know, from work capability assessments through to kind of employment litigation, those that are affected are kind of always uh, navigating these different languages. And I think that's something that's really pertinent to my practice, that a lot of my work 
explores an interest in, I suppose, the scales of speech through from a kind of uh, instructional and bureaucratic use of language through to a kind of intimate and emotional way of speaking at a, a kind of more intimate scale. So I've been kind of working with these groups to kind of think through those different kind of legal languages, legal frames, but also the kind of social structures that they're sitting within. And something that really came out of that was this idea of acceptable bodily risk that keeps on coming up in some of these litigation claims. The idea that the working body could be valued in terms of risk, um, and that's particularly pertinent to uh, the handling of hazardous materials. I'm quite early in this project, so that's kind of where we got to, and then the coronavirus happened, and we've had to put the project on pause. But I think this idea of acceptable risk when it comes to bodies, what bodies matter, how they matter, uh, what value they have as working bodies or components of a kind of social space, it feels uh, like a mirror to the to the situation that we're facing at the moment, I think. You know, it's, as you say, it's too early to talk much about the form that that work's going to, to take, given the point in the project you got to before you had to stop. But maybe this is a good moment to loop back to one of your earlier projects, a film called Correspondence O, shot around and discussing the Pioneer Health Centre in Peckham. I wondered if you'd like to explain to me and listeners what that film was. I know it was a two-screen uh, installation work, but explain to us more about the form of the film and the, the Peckham experiment that took place at the Pioneer Health Centre, uh, how this feeds into the narrative of the work and the content of the work. I suppose that it's it's interesting because I've I've been working with the this kind of subject of health for quite a while, but thinking about it as as a way of kind of framing how we interact. Because I I think no matter what the quality of our health is, from the chronic to the inner, it's our constant regulatory state, and it means that it's for me it becomes a way of kind of navigating the kind of economic, social and kind of political structures that frame our interactions. You know, health is uh, infused into design, it's it's infused into to policy and politics, it's infused into our histories. And in, in Correspondence So, I was exploring that in quite an explicit way. So it's a two-screen uh, moving image installation that expresses the kind of complex and changing landscape of public health and the kind of social shift away from a kind of group mindset to a more egocentric kind of user-focused and technology-infused understanding of wellness. And the kind of fulcrum of the piece was the archives and history uh, and physical architecture of the Pioneer Health Centre in Peckham, kind of thinking about how uh, these histories uh, might be read against a kind of contemporary experience of public well-being. So the kind of starting point for the film was one of the first pieces of archive that I came across in the Pioneer Centre archives, which are a completely chaotic mess of material. But there was a film that was shot by one of the centre's doctors, and it was intended as a piece of observational footage. It was, it was intended to observe how participants of this social experiment behaved with each other. So 
it was a medical document, but the way that it read was as a, a structuralist film because of the way that it had been transcribed to archives. So that it was a kind of disjointed mesh of kind of body parts and rope and glass and bits of the building that would kind of flash into focus and flash out of focus. And what really hit me about it was that it felt like it really chimed with the way that I edit and I work with with imagery. So something that I suppose my approach to editing is thinking through the idea of scene gist. So what I mean by scene gist is the way that an image or a word might appear for a split second on the screen. Because of our previous experience, we're, we're able to build a very rich narrative around that image in a very short space of time. So I'm in, interested in the way that you can place seemingly disparate images together to build very rich um, narratives. Uh, and I do that in, in the way that I work with text, but I also do that in the way that I work with images. And so for me, that was kind of starting point for navigating this archive. But I also was working with Cambridge Neurology Research Department, looking at ways to navigate this archive that was so invested in health and the body through contemporary medical techniques. And I was also working with one of the residents of the Pioneer Centre who lives there today, who's an architectural surveyor. And some of the tools that he uses in, in surveying are a LIDAR scanner, which creates a kind of digital scan of any surface it hits. And I use the LIDAR scanner and the MRI scanner as a way to kind of survey and navigate and test the surfaces of the body, but also the surfaces of the building. And through this kind of link to this kind of fragmented archive, I kind of imploded all of these images into each other. So body and building became kind of fused, if that makes sense. Can you tell us more about the history of the Pioneer Health Centre itself and the um, the Peckham experiment that was conducted there in the um, 1920s, 30s and 40s? Yeah, so the Peckham experiment was a, a kind of holistic model of healthcare which aimed to cultivate community well-being between 1926 and 1950. And it was founded at a time when many people relied on church, charity, friendly societies for their health. There was um, kind of no NHS or, or welfare state. And the Peckham experiment was kind of hugely radical at the time and at the forefront of this kind of dramatic shift in the public perceptions of health. But um, it's been kind of very much historically overlooked. The biologists who ran the experiment chose Peckham because it represented this respectable slice of society or the kind of respectable working class. And to join the centre, you had to be a mother, a father and a, a child. You had to be a kind of family unit and you had to be employed. It wasn't a kind of altruistic scheme that many people think it was. And there was no kind of imposed order or rules. It was this kind of informal structure of resistance and the biologists understood that in studying this kind of organismal human unit those subjects had to be free ed agents within that experiment it was a kind of radical movement that was both kind of medically and socially constituted in 1935, it moved to a purpose-built building that was designed by a utilitarian architect called Owen Williams and kind of shelled within this purpose-built living laboratory. 
surrounded by kind of glass and uninterrupted openness. It was a, a complete break from the, the kind of hospitals that would have come before it, which would have been very confined and lightless. There was no kind of circulation of air. The connections between health and environment were still being kind of explored at that point. But it wasn't medical facility, you know, they, it was, it was, they believed in kind of treating the healthy, not the sick. It was about thinking about what the purpose of health was, what the nature of health was. They had a kind of swimming pool, ballroom, gym, children's playrooms. There was a, you know, they were pivotal in the whole foods movement, the organic movement. But one of the biggest radical shifts was that they had medical observation rooms that, you know, many people in the area wouldn't have had access to. So all of these facilities, all of these kind of amenities would have been completely radical at the time, at a point where none of this would have been public domain. The idea of a common good, a shared social asset was completely alien at that point. And I think that's why it was such an interesting kind of experiment to return to. Kind of over the years, it's been adopted by lots of different movements. You know, there's obvious parallels to the kind of cybernetic movement of 1960s and 70s, but it's been kind of seen as an anarchist ideal, as a proxy for eugenics. It's been seen as a, a way to kind of reinvigorate the NHS it's been used as a a model for kind of neoliberal localism and a kind of more conservative outlook you know it's centrist far right uh, and libertarian it's kind of all of these things and none of them and I think that's why it was such a a complicated archive to look at but it's also uh, why it was so fascinating as well and I think that that's maybe why I approached it in the way that I did to kind of think about what it meant for me as an uh, as an artist to be working archivally. How was I accountable or not to the kind of multiple narratives that were at play in that that material, and to use it as a springboard to think about our kind of contemporary relationship to notions of common good, shared ideas around health and welfare. Well, with all that in mind, you know, you've talked about the archival research and about some of the formal techniques you used to shoot the film. Can you talk about the construction of the narrative in the film, the characters that appear in the film, and the sort of narrative shape that the, the film took as a consequence of all that research and all that thinking? For me, I wanted the relationships in the film to remain quite obtuse. So there's a kind of central protagonist that um, navigates these different time periods, these different spaces. And you could read her as embodying a kind of observational role as as someone watching from the outside she could be Enos Hope Pierce she could be a mother she could be a patient and uh, it was important for me that she oscillated between uh, a kind of passive role of being acted a body being acted upon and a role of observation or an, an observer or a scientific figure in some way in order to kind of navigate that archive. Some of the scenes are directly replicated from the archive and some of the scenes are inspired by it. So gesture becomes quite important to kind of activate the building, to activate these different spaces and to find strange links between the two. 
Uh, it was important for me that these figures didn't become ghosts, but they became kind of after images that remained active, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We will share a link to at least an excerpt of the film online as part of the programme. Um, I just want to close this section by playing our listeners a brief extract from the film just so you can hear the voiceover. So I'm going to play that now. radically exterior amidst global uncertainty and social unrest. The urgent nature of private bodies in public spaces. An intolerance to the treatment a loss of asset. Bring your fingers to your chest. Stop. So that was Correspondence O. Um, I want to move the conversation on now to your next film, Deep Structure, which was completed and exhibited last year. And whereas Correspondence O dealt with, primarily with uh, with healthcare, this film dealt quite a lot with housing and was shot at the Park Hill Estate in Sheffield. Um, so I wonder if you'd like to tell us about, again, about the the form and concept of the film about Park Hill as a venue and the themes that you were you were dealing with. Yeah, it's interesting because even though yes, as you said, it was it was thinking about housing. Housing is so connected to health and Park Hill Estate actually replaced a huge area of, of slum living uh, in Sheffield uh, where there was huge health inequalities. It was it had one of the largest cholera outbreaks in, in Britain. There was, you know, very little sanitation and running water. So Park Hill was a hugely radical scheme in the way that it um, responded to those conditions. It, it provided families with a quality of living that none of them would have had uh, before. And I think it's really important to be reminded of that, what, what a kind of radical shift uh, those housing policies were between kind of uh, 1930 when they began to be mobilized through to the through to the 60s but for me as well it, it kind of marks uh, a kind of paternalist peak of the welfare states that kind of moment in the 1960s where we there was a lot of kind of radical hope i think which became dismantled through factorism at a later point 
I was invited by uh, Laura Clark, who was then the curator at S1 Art Space, to um, to think about a commission. And it was a completely open invitation. I could have uh, done whatever I wanted on that site. But as the the gallery is actually in the, the middle of Park Hill Estate, I found it almost impossible to ignore the kind of resonances of, of the building. And at a point where... It's at a moment of change of use and civic civic significance. It felt like an important moment to kind of be thinking about that building. In 2015, uh, I think it was 15, it might have been 13, the council decanted some of the last social housing tenants from Park Hill. Uh, at its heyday, it housed over uh, 3,000 people. So it was a very significant piece of uh, social architecture. It was then sold on to Urban Splash, who are uh, private property developers for a very nominal amount of money. And it's now been sold as private flats and uh, luxury student accommodation. There are some, I think it's Peasbody, but there are some social housing elements to the to the scheme but the exact numbers are not public domain and that's part of the contract that the council drew with urban splash that these figures would stay out of the public domain which is outrageous and one of the 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 things that i found most jarring about this transition was the way that urban splash used these quite sanitized images of working class kids and mothers in pinafores in in kind of cheerful cheerful scenes to kind of sell the kind of mythology of Park Hill uh, to the private sector and so for me uh, that was really a starting point to kind of think about the links between kind of health architecture and community well-being through the lens of Park Hill Estate and the film kind of aims to kind of complicate uh, the kind of aesthetic icon of a, a kind of brutalist building like Park Hill and to kind of think about the multiple kind of social and political tensions that that play out on its site. So by combining lots of different approaches I was trying to kind of unwrite the idea of an official narrative by bringing in different voices that that would kind of contrast in some way. And and the starting point for the film was the kind of shape of the building itself, which is this kind of sprawling, singular structure. And when you look at it from above, it it kind of looks like a a kind of cellular map, which is totally in keeping with ideas that that were happening at the time around cybernetics, around systems theory. So I I, I work with ex-residents, material scientists uh, from Sheffield University, the Space Syntax Laboratory at the Bartlett, a a cement factory that's very close by Park Hill, uh, and a sociologist. Uh, And the film really thinks about the estate uh, and the factory as a kind of living body, a kind of machinic body. I visited Park Hill for the first time in 2012 and I'd taken a copy of uh, Owen Hathaway's book, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, where he writes about the um, the estate and what happened to it quite a lot. Um, It's interesting you talking about the advertising of the building using these sort of quite romanticised images of a sort of domesticated working class life. When I visited, they were advertising it with the word, don't you want me baby, uh, <laughs> um, offering the flats for sale, of course, a reference to the the Human League being from, from Sheffield. You know, at the time, I thought that maybe the Human League song from the late 70s, from this sort of earlier, weirder 
post-punk phase called uh, Blind Youth, which talks about high-rise living not being so bad, might have been more appropriate. But of course, that didn't really, you know, that sort of weird, slightly Ballardian <laughs> lyricism didn't really kind of fit with, with what Urban Splash wanted to do with, with the building. I think there's an interesting parallel there between the sort of commercialization of the human league as a pop band and the the sort of marketing of park hill to a completely different type of person you know i think it is interesting to to talk about what happens when these iconic modernist buildings get divorced from their their social function you know obviously owen has written quite a lot about the path that modernist architecture took through the sort of popular consciousness from the sort of 60s and 70s through to the 90s and, and 2000s by the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, these quite idealistic architects, you know, who often maybe had quite a sort of top-down, a paternalistic approach to what they did. Thinking, for example, of Alison and Peter Smithson, who designed Robin Hood Gardens in uh, in London around about the same time as Park Hill. There's a film with them, with the um, writer and filmmaker B.S. Johnson, uh, where they talk about the process of designing Robin Hood Gardens, and they do kind of come across as these are quite haughty, quite out of touch people in the sort of way that, you know, the stereotype developed around modernist architects. But this stereotype was sort of weaponized as a way of delegitimizing and deconstructing the idea of social housing, of something that was done by the state for a public good, um, you know, during the Thatcherite period. Uh, and of course, you know, Owen Hathaway has written about how this often wasn't fair, it often wasn't true, uh, you know, often the architects did live in the buildings that they they designed and, you know, had a sort of genuine rapport with the people who who lived there. So I think it's interesting to think about, you know, what happened when this type of modernism became fashionable again in the sort of last 10, 15 years, maybe. You know, I think of other buildings such as um, Embassy Court in Brighton and Hove that was a wreck in the early 2000s and then was um, was renovated and uh, rented and sold off quite expensively. But um, I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about that, about your interest in social housing that goes beyond its materiality and how you reintroduce personal accounts into into the story of, of Park Hill, how you've heard from residents, how you yeah. found your interviewees. I think it's really tempting to kind of read these schemes through a kind of narrative of failure it's often uh, and actually even urban splash uses this idea of overcoming the bad times uh, and that that somehow they're saving these buildings from themselves and actually it was very interesting for example working with uh, space syntax on the project so uh, to kind of explain a little bit about what space syntax do and why i decided to work with them They are an urban research uh, department at the Bartlett that explores the human use of buildings, so the space between buildings, but through a a computational way of measuring how we use space. So whether that's uh, the pedestrian flow around a building, the view that you have from different parts of a building, they do that on an overwhelming scale that a human being couldn't do. So it's using kind of algorithmic processes to think about how buildings are used, how buildings function, but also on a much wider scale, how cities function, how uh, much wider networks of people function and I think what was so exciting to work with them was that uh, it was a way of me thinking about 
how a, a building functions, but without being seduced by the aesthetic of the building itself to actually think about how it worked as a space. And I think what really was revealed in that process is that it's a very functional building. It's a very functional space. And that the narrative of failure that exists around it is kind of not true. It was very connected to the to the train station. It's very connected to the city centre. They had their own shops and, and stuff that was easily accessible. So you kind of wonder where these narratives come from. And the, the narratives come from the fact that work was completely decimated in the area and that those structures of support that we, we have beyond uh, the kind of physical layout of the building weren't there. They weren't in place and they weren't sustained. But I think there's, there's something else that's kind of interesting about the design of the building in that it was designed around a very specific idea of work and although we, I think we have to be very careful about the way that we think about sort of these failure narratives when we revisit schemes like Park Hill, there is a kind of interesting uh, kind of rigidity in the way that the building was, was considered in that the idea was that the, the men would be at work in steelworks, they would be out during the day and the housewives would occupy the domestic space. So a lot of the kind of design considerations were designed around how women would occupy this domestic space with children. And when work kind of imploded in the area and the men returned to the estates with no work, with huge kind of mental health problems, with, uh, with all the baggage that comes from unemployment, there was a huge amount of tension that played out on that estate. And it doesn't, I think, lie with the design intentions. It, it lies with a state that kind of enforced um, those things to happen, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I wonder if we could just talk a bit more about the the form of the film. You know, I, I watched the film recently and greatly enjoyed it. And, you know, I was reminded in places of the sort of style and tone of people like the the London Filmmakers Cooperative member and director Liz Rhodes and some of her works like Light Reading which have a sort of quite austere high modernist feel to them which of course feeds into the sort of design and perception of Park Hill but also you know a number of um, of interviews with with residents and quite deft and quite creative use of sound and narration. Maybe we could just hear a bit of that now. In traditional streets there is also a sense of identity it may be the position of a tree, or a post box, or the pub on the corner. This gives to the individual families a satisfying sense of belonging within the structure of society. Mr Ivor Smith's view was that they'd done the research as well as they could on the social aspects. He did not really agree that they provided the sort of social environment that was provided now. They tried to provide the sort of social environment that used to be provided. He thought that was a contribution. D. Housewives living in houses or in flats near the ground or many floors above were equally likely to suffer from nervous symptoms. Of gloss, of line work and silver tone protean realisation of an architectural plan.
radical politics isn't a secretion of our brickwork. What spaces are left open for change on a human scale of unpredictability? So that was that was an extract from from the film. So maybe we can just talk a bit more about the the form of the film and and how you how you found the film's form. As you said, I worked quite closely with uh, ex-residents of Parkhill Estate. The way that we worked together was thinking through some of the early uh, surveys that were done to kind of monitor how people were adapting to this new way of life. When I was developing the film, I spent quite a lot of time in Sheffield City archives and I was really struck by kind of what a kind of municipal archive it is compared to other archives that I've worked with, like the Peckham experiment, which is chaotic. But what I found was a was a, a wealth of kind of qualitative social data uh, and these kind of very dry utilitarian minute meeting books. And through that, I came across the estate's first occupier, who was Joan Dimmers. And she was a sociologist who was intended to kind of help residents adapt to this new way of life. And I was interested in her in terms of what she represented as a, a kind of civic character, but also this quite uncomfortable idea of managing the working class into a way of life that was kind of predetermined. And one of the most kind of unique and, and unusual aspects of Park Hill is, is the emphasis that was placed on the residents themselves. And so working with ex-residents, we, we took these survey questions and we decided to kind of think through the languages that were present within them. And um, what was sort of most stark about them was that the, the questions were categorised not only by gender, but gendered roles. So they're addressed to housewives and husbands or housewives without children. So there's a kind of distinct expectation of the kind of work that you would perform that's kind of totally infused into the way the design was kind of activated and the community was expected to kind of use that space. So um, we kind of worked through those languages in the film and it becomes part of the kind of tapestry of uh, the kind of voiceover and these different kind of voices that you hear within the soundtrack. And uh, accent becomes quite a, an important key uh, in the way that I've used voice in the film. So you hear these kind of undulations of, of accent and my family well my, my, my dad's actually from Sheffield and um, you you do note the the shift in accent kind of um, from one side of the city to the other is really quite apparent and that is very embedded in in the film as a way of navigating these archives the fact that it's not a lament to past eras of health powered reform but it's thinking about their impact on on the now on like access to care and agency and like the fact that this moment with the pandemic has kind of exposed our lack of a common good or it's made us reappraise what the shape of a common good might be so i think that's uh, that's an interesting place to conclude talking about deep structure and indeed uh, conclude the first of these sweet 212 sessions so um Ilona Sagar, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. And um, 
we will be back very soon with uh, more interviews. Have a number of uh, artists and writers lined up for the coming weeks. So we will be continuing to bring you content, whatever happens with the um, with the ongoing health crisis. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Take care. See you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>